Father, we wish to wait before you to hear your spirit speak to us, that we might take away something from your word here that would apply to our lives and that we could apply externally and also to our hearts, that we would not simply walk away hearing words and not being those who do the words that you have. Father, we would pray that as we conform to your image, you would assist us in this endeavor that you would prompt us by your Holy Spirit, that we would not shun your promptings and that we would be able to instruct others and lead others in the way of righteousness. And Lord, we'd heed warnings and we'd hold to the blessings that your word promises. So Father, as we go through your word, may your spirit minister to us, encourage us, and move us on in our walks. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, previously, we were going through the book of Acts chapter 15, and we saw that there was a sharp disagreement between Paul Barnabas and the Judaizers. The Judaizers wanted those who became Christians to adhere to the Old Testament law, all the festivals, all the requirements that were there, the the dietary directions that were given. And that's what the Judaizers want. And Paul and Barnabas said no. And they came into a sharp disagreement with those Judaizers. And they ended up going down to Jerusalem and speaking with the apostles and also the elders. And they came to the conclusion that they should not have to, those who were Greeks and those who were Gentiles, those who were pagans, when they became Christians, they didn't have to follow the law of Moses. But there were certain things that they were asked to just refrain from. Of course, sexual immorality was a sin that was rampant at that time, just like it is today. And then there was withholding the idea of eating blood or killing an animal or having an animal that was killed or strangled and the blood is still in it. Those types of things were put into practice because they would simply be very offensive to the Jews and you had both Jews and Gentiles in the church. Then there is a second disagreement, a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And that's where we pick it up in verse 36. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers, all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthening the churches. So this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Both Paul and Barnabas had gone back to the church in Antioch. They were ministering from there. And because they had a big disagreement between Barnabas and Paul, they ended up splitting and going into two groups. Now, when that happens, sometimes we think, well, what a tragedy. They were working so well together. But I think by God's design, even though they couldn't get along and couldn't come to agreement, God used that separation of those two to actually divide the effort. And so Barnabas, along with Mark, went back to the island of Cyprus there. And then Paul went on to Cilicia. And so you had two sets of missionaries going out. And so eventually that was 
turning out to be a good thing. And Paul goes all the way over to the area of Greece, and he goes to Corinth and Thessalonica, and all of those towns which are in that isthmus uh, of the Greece, uh, where Greece is located. That's where Paul ended up going, and he ended up ended up having a tremendous impact and he ended up meeting up with Timothy and Troas and and Timothy was spoken well of by the people in Troas and other places and so Paul took Timothy and eventually Timothy went around with him after he went through Thessalonica uh, and Berea down in those areas and he went over to Ephesus and there Timothy became the pastor in Ephesus. And so it was a good thing that Paul and Barnabas had split, even though the relationship was not so good. So what about this? <clears throat> do we lament the fact that relationships fall away? Yeah, we, we do. But God can also use that. And we want to keep in mind that Barnabas probably sided with John Mark because they were relatives. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, it says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greeting, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And so they were family. This idea of blood runs thicker than water may apply here. And, and Barnabas wanted to protect John Mark. That could have come in. And how old was John Mark? Now, Paul and Barnabas were both fully mature in the Lord. They were both apostles. John Mark was young. He was, some people say he was as young as 16. Others say he was as old as 24. So he was an old or a young individual compared to the old guys who were sent out in ministry. But he ends up becoming the pastor, like I said, at Ephesus. Now we do know that Paul and Mark's relationship was restored, both in 2 Timothy 4.11 and Philemon uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Mark is involved with Paul once again, but we never see any indication that Barnabas and Paul reconciled their relationship. We never see that anywhere. Now, we don't know why. We don't know. It could have been because Barnabas ended up dying and they couldn't reconcile the relationship because Barnabas is not mentioned again. Or it could be that they just couldn't resolve the issue between them. Or maybe Barnabas was holding a grudge or Paul was holding a grudge. But I, I think that if there was truly an opportunity for them to reconcile, I think that they would have. Because Paul taught reconciliation. If you have a Bible, it's probably a good idea to turn there or your electronic Bible, if it's on your phone, to Second Corinthians chapter 5. And it is five times Paul talks about this ministry of reconciliation or to be reconciled. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making an appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God 
made him who was no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's Paul preaching reconciliation with God. And I think he knows, of course we all know, that God would say, well, first put your religion into practice. Reconcile with your brother and sister who is there. If you have an issue with someone, you want to make sure you make effort to reconcile with them. Now, it's not always possible. Some people die before that that can take place. And there is no reconciliation. It's just not possible. But usually it's rooted in the idea of, I have been sinned against and the sin is great and I don't want to reconcile with this other individual. Also, Jesus taught reconciliation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says, therefore, if you offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So God wants the relationships free flowing. He doesn't want anything getting in the way. And to reconcile means to settle or acquiesce. That's kind of like the dropping of the shoulders and not being defensive and saying, you know, we're not getting along, but I don't want that to get in the way of our relationship. I want to make sure that we have a clear line of communication open. So we don't know what happened to Paul and Barnabas, but there is a lesson for us in if it is possible to be reconciled. And yesterday I did a memorial for two people out in the ocean and I had gone back and looked how many funerals and memorials I have performed uh, over the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Lakeside and it's somewhere between 40 and 50 uh, memorials and I I started looking through the names of all the people and I have them listed as they are saved and there were I, I have done memorials funerals for those who have committed suicide for those uh, who have experienced SIDS, their infants have died. Uh, for those adults who have unexpectedly passed. And uh, walking you know, through this trail of doing these funerals, I, I've also seen those who have died unexpectedly from drug overdoses. There was uh, one young man, uh, he had heroin in a balloon that was tied to a string in his tooth and he had swallowed the balloon and the balloon had opened up and he died as a result of that while he was sleeping. Uh, another young lady, she drank pool acid, uh, committed suicide. Another young man, he had jumped off a bridge, the San Diego Coronado Bridge, uh, and he had died, uh, obviously. And then when I would be at these types of funerals, I would see people that would be weeping and there would be regret that they didn't have time to go back and talk with the individuals. The the one young man who jumped off of the bridge, he had all the classic signs of going to commit suicide. He went to people, closed that account, so to speak, returned things just being nice and kind of saying goodbye without saying goodbye. And he did that, and and it was a shock. Uh, When we were over at the Blockbuster Shopping Center over there, the the church was full with kids from Grossmont High School because that's where he went. 
and you know I was able to give them the gospel there but you could just see the emptiness it's like they had suffered great loss and they felt that something was taken away from them you could see the grief on their faces from those who were left behind and with Paul and Barnabas he probably experienced some of that where people died and he wasn't able to reach them further and so if, if we look at that we want to make sure that we never pass up the opportunity to be reconciled with someone who is out there because we are all going to pass on from this life and we want to make sure that everything is clear between us and our friends or us and our family we can take the offenses of the past and we can choose to overlook them there may not be forgiveness installed because forgiveness requires a person recognizing an error and saying will you forgive me that's biblical forgiveness but you can choose to just overlook something and not in a way that is unwise you don't want to be foolish in the way you conduct your relationships but you want to make sure that you're able to have a relationship with somebody that you have been at variance with <clears throat> now going on in chapter 16 of the book of acts in verse 1 we have he which is referring to paul came to derby and then to lystra where a disciple named timothy lived whose mother was a jewess and a believer but whose father was a greek the brothers at lystra and iconium spoke well of him paul wanted to take him along on the journey so he circumcised him because of the jews who lived in the area for they all knew that his father was a greek as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So as I mentioned, Timothy was probably between 16 and 24 years old. And they, people deduce that based on other scriptures, which are there and how Paul, uh, how old Paul was and his companions and when he was, where he was uh, at the time. But why did Paul go and circumcise Timothy? Now, Timothy's a young man, and you have to ask yourself, wow, that's, that's like a big commitment. Your father's a Greek, chooses not to circumcise Timothy. The mother's a Jewess. She marries outside the Jewish faith, which is a sin for Jews to do, to marry outside the Jewish faith. But she did. But it's okay in the New Covenant you can marry whoever you want to, but they just have to be in the faith. That's what we're supposed to do. And Timothy obviously was brought up in the faith. He understood what it was, but he still maintained the non-circumcision stand. And he wasn't circumcised. And Paul said, I'm going to circumcise you. What amazes me is Timothy said, okay. And he's like, wow, you are in it. You know, you, you are walking by faith if you choose to do that as a man. And Paul gives the reason, I think, in another portion of Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, why he circumcised Timothy. And he speaks there and he says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. In other words, he would follow the Old Testament law for the sake of the Jews, not to offend them in order to win them. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those who have not the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. 
I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. So Paul had Timothy be circumcised because he was going to go into the synagogues and he wouldn't have to be rejected because he is circumcised. And that was big for the Jews. So we should take on the customs and the way of life of those we are trying to minister to. If you remember Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He ended up taking on the culture and the activities of the people who were Chinese. He ended up wearing what they wore. He ended up growing his hair long and having it in a braid. He learned the language that was there. He involved himself deeply in the culture and the customs that were there in order to win the Chinese. Now, this kind of goes against our flesh. We want people to conform to our way of life, the way we do things. We even do that in our culture. And it's important for our culture when people from other cultures come here, we want them to assimilate. We want them to become Americans. We want them to adopt our values, our morals, those types of things. We want them to have that. But if you go to another country... You have to be willing to adopt what they do. Uh, One of the biggest things is to eat without questioning that which is served before you when you were in another country. Now, I've heard several stories of this, and I tried to look them up. I couldn't find them, but I I did see one story of somebody who would take uh, kids on missionary adventures, young adults, and one of the places was Uganda. And in Uganda, they eat some tilapia. And one of the delicacies of the tilapia is the eyeball. And he was saying he encouraged these kids to eat the eyeballs of the tilapia. And I've heard other uh, illustrations of this in Africa and some other places in the Middle East where you might have a goat and they may pull out the eye and give it to the missionary and it's the delicacy and you're supposed to eat the delicacy and I couldn't confirm if that was the case but there have been plenty of times where we have gone elsewhere especially down to Mexico you go down to Mexico and we were building some houses down there and one of the requirements that they put on Mexico caravan ministries that they had put on the families that we would build a house for is they have to supply us with lunch And so they would go to great expense and buy lunch and they would fix lunch for all the people who would go down. And I would always instruct the people, whatever they serve, you're going to eat it. And some people said, no, I'm not. And they would, you know, take some and give it to somebody else. Here, eat this. You know, they'd push it off on the plate. And I never got sick off the food down there. Some of it was great. We'd have mole, which is chocolate with chicken. We'd have that. And we'd have all kinds of meals down there, tamales and things. And it was all good. But that's Mexico. We have Mexican food up here. I had Mexican food last night. It's all great. You know, it's not too bad. But you go to some other places... And they don't have those niceties. They they don't have food fixed the way that we would approve of. And there are whole books written about eating what they serve you if you're in somebody else's country. And so you become like them in order to minister them in order not to bring an offense. If you go over to somebody's house and you're sitting down for a meal at the house and they fix something... Do you tell them, oh, no, I don't like that. Do you eat it? Do you not eat it? You should eat it at least a little bit. 
My parents used to sit us down at the table and, you know, my mom would fix some canned spinach and she'd say, now you're going to eat that just a little bit. You don't have to eat a lot, just a little bit. And there'd be different foods that she would fix, like okra. Now, I like okra, but she would fry okra. And it's like, okay, I'm going to try some of this. And it was okay. And just different foods, you know, that would be out there. And, and so we learned that at the dinner table. We also learned that wherever we go, we're not to bring an offense to somebody's house that we go to especially when it comes to eating. I can remember visiting relatives. It was somewhere in central California. I don't remember where it was. It was some distant aunt or somebody, and she invited us in for a meal. We were visiting there. And as we sat down, or we didn't sit down yet, we were outside because the inside of the house, it smelled. And we didn't, the boys, we were young, we didn't want to go inside. And so my mother comes out and said, come on, boys, let's go inside. We're going to sit down and eat. And my youngest brother, who didn't know any better, said, I don't want to go in there. It stinks in there. Just real loud, you know, and you could hear it. And my mom, I'm sure she just was so embarrassed at the point, you know, like, what am I going to do? Oh, it's not that bad. Come on, honey. And go inside and sit down. There's so many ways that we could bring an offense. Imagine if that was an adult that said that. I ain't going in there. It stinks in there. You know, you would bring an offense to the person. And so we are to endure those things. Without complaining, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14, because we're trying to win them. We're trying to be a witness to them. So we want to eat what they eat without questioning or refusing. We might even start to dress like they do. So we do not bring an offense. Now, if you're there for short term, it's not always necessary to do that. But if you're going to be there for a long time, it's probably a good idea. And you want to participate in their local customs as long as they don't violate scripture. And a whole chapter is dedicated to this in scripture. Giving in to the customs or the weaknesses of others that you're trying to reach, that you're trying to minister to. And who are you trying to reach and minister to? Everyone. Who is my neighbor? Everyone is my neighbor. If you have a Bible again, I'm going to read through Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 just really spells this out. And this is a directive for us. And I, I wanted to read through this because so many times I've come across people, people even that have come through this church, and they say, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do what I want to. They need to just mature. They need to just grow up in the faith. And it's the wrong attitude scripturally. The scriptural attitude we're supposed to have is to bear with those, the failings of the weak, those who are weaker. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks to God and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone alone. 
And none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So keep that in mind, verse 12. If we decide that person needs to conform to me, God says, you're going to stand and answer for that. Instead of bowing to their weaknesses, helping them by being a witness to them, you're going to be judged if you insist they become like you. Verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. You know, um, I'll go on with verse 14 here in a second. This story I, I shared some years ago. When I got saved, I didn't have anybody to mentor me. Because I, I got saved through a radio ministry and I was on my own and I just decided to start going to a church that I'd been to once. And and then God brought some people in my life. Uh, I was a waiter and it was Jeff and Tess Lee and they ended up coming to the restaurant I was working at and we ended up having a conversation by something I put on the tab. And he ended up mentoring me. He ended up discipling me. And I would meet with him on a regular basis and he would tell me the way things were and I'd read the Bible and have questions and I'd ask him about it and he would answer them and I attended his Bible study and it was just great. They, they were truly spiritual individuals and it, I was just so blessed to have them to guide me in my life. And then it came Christmas time and I wanted to do something special for them. And uh, I thought that I owe them so much for taking time with me. And so I went and bought them a gift. Now, the gift, it was the same size as something else. But what I bought them was, you know, those little meats and cheeses? I forget what they're called. Bridgeford or whatever they might be, the farms, something farms. And you can buy those. And the box was just the right size. It was a good size box. And I brought it to their house. And I gave it to the woman who was there, Tess. And I said, I just wanted you guys to have this at Christmas. I just want to say thank you for all you've done for me. And she goes, oh, what is it? Wine? And I I just go, oh, you're killing me. I was on the inside. I was this Christian no wine, no dance, you know, you can't do any of that stuff. And I, I didn't know what was permissible, not permissible. I was such a young Christian. And I walked away just going, she has stabbed me in my heart. I am so offended by what she said. Now, Bible doesn't teach to abstain. Jesus drank wine. Everybody drank wine back in the day of Jesus because it was actually medicinal. It would kill a lot of the organisms that were in water, and so they would drink wine on a regular basis. It was very common. It's still common places in the Middle East. But me, I was just going at the time, no, this can't be. And the offense was so great in my heart. Of course, later I learned, like, 
you stupid. You know, that's not what scripture teaches you. And especially I'm not supposed to judge them according to what Romans says. And I need to give them the freedom. And if they're going to do that, I know that they weren't drunkards or anything like that. But just the culture that they had been in, that was something that was acceptable to them. And I needed to accept that, that that's what they were doing. So going on in verse 14, as one who is in the Lord, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat or drink, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy the brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith, but everything or and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So God gave us a whole chapter to deal with this, to make sure we're dealing with those who are weaker in the faith than ourselves that we conform to what they think is correct, as long you know it's not sinful or anything, but anything that they think is holy and righteous and just. And if you think you have freedom to do something, well, don't let that thing which you think you have freedom for to be spoken of as evil because you believe you have the freedom to do so. And God blesses that as well. So it's not our job to conform them to our image. It is our job to allow them to be conformed into the image of Christ. And that's a walk for everyone. That, that is something that we have to recognize in those who are weaker. And again, Timothy, he was willing to do that which was necessary to reach out to the Jews, which was become circumcised. Now, divine guidance is employed here. <clears throat> God is leading Paul in a particular direction. And as he sets out with Silas, we see in verse 9, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I'm going to give you four words. If you're taking notes, these words are indicate, obviate, tolerate, and approbate. I'm going to explain what all of those mean. But first, God, he indicated where Paul was supposed to go, and he did this by a vision. God can place things on our hearts. He can give us visions. He can give us dreams. He can have people come and talk to us about what maybe they think the Lord ought to have us do and it would be confirmed in our hearts by the Lord or confirmed by other people. So God indicates what he wants us to do, where he wants us to go. We just have to listen. We have to pay attention when God says something to us, like go out and witness to this person. I was just talking to somebody yesterday and this individual, he said, you know, he was praying for a wife and 
And he happened to be in a foreign country. And when he was in the foreign country, uh, as he was praying for this wife, he walked into a coffee shop. And he came up to this woman and he felt the Lord told him, that is your wife. A stranger to him. But this woman came up and lo and behold, they ended up talking. And lo and behold, she was there yesterday. They ended up marrying. And he felt God told him that's his wife. God told me to come to Lakeside. God may tell you to start a Bible study. God may tell you to go on a missions trip. God may tell you to read a particular book. God has the ability to do that. We just have to be listening to what he has to say. And so here God indicates, and directly so, where Paul was supposed to go. Paul and his companions, verse 6. Oh, wait, I got to back up here. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia, Galatia, and had been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So God resisted where he wanted to go, and he led them in another direction. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And so... This, this idea that Paul was trying to go somewhere. He kept on pushing open the door, trying to go to Asia, and God kept on saying, no, no, no. Now, God indicates where he wants us to go, and there are times where we think where he wants us to go or what he wants us to do, and he tolerates us. Like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did. And God tolerated him after that. Well, what about uh, Paul and Barnabas concerning John Mark? They had a disagreement between them. God tolerated the disagreement between them and ended up using them both in their particular ministries. Well, what about David and Bathsheba? It was clearly sin. David should have been stoned to death for what he did. But God tolerated him because God still had a plan to go through and so it it could be something sinful it could be something that is just out of the will of God but God will often tolerate us to get us to the point where we need to be and he does so in a loving fashion he doesn't fold his hands or raise them in the air and say hey they what's wrong with this kid He, he doesn't do that he knows exactly what's going on but he still tolerates what we want to do and Gideon and the Midianites. Now, this I don't think was sinful, where he is asking God, should I lay out the, I want to have a sign. Can I lay out this fleece? Then it'd be wet first and dry all around from the morning dew. And he didn't quite trust enough. And he goes, one more time, can you have just the opposite? The fleece is dry and the ground is wet around. God tolerated that. And he loved Gideon, so he said, okay. I'm going to do that. Even though I've spoken, I'm going to do this for you. And what about the Israelites? Yeah, I recently went through the book of Exodus again. Man, they were a stiff-necked, disobedient people. Just left and right over and over and over. And Moses interceded. God wanted to destroy all of them and raise up a nation through Moses. And God said, no, please. Or Moses said, no, please don't do that. And God tolerated them as they were going through the wilderness. So God will do this by his grace. He will often tolerate us. Now, approbate. First we have God indicates, then he approbates, or he gives approval or support or sanction to what we want to do. 
In verse 11, it says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a living city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was the woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So so God approved when they went to Troas and they went to this woman and this woman got baptized and God approved where they should go and what they should do and who they should talk to. So we have the indication, we have the toleration, we have the obviate or obviation. That means he's preventing uh, Paul from going where he wants to go. That was in Asia. I just want to go through those words again. So it's indicate, he directs them, he obviates, he prevents them from going somewhere. He tolerates them as they would be going somewhere. And then he approbates or he approves or supports or sanctions what they were doing. He blessed them, and they ended up having a place to stay as Paul entered into the city and met Lydia. So we put all these things together, and that's how God can move us. He can set us in a direction. Now, sometimes he wants us to go in a particular direction, and we just don't want to. No, I don't want to do that. Maybe he wants us to speak. No, we don't want to do that. Is there an example from the Old Testament that you know of of anybody that God said to go do something, and they said no. Well, first one, Moses. What about Moses? Moses was told to go to the Israelites. God said, somebody else, don't send me, and I can't speak very well. Please don't. I give you your brother Aaron. I just don't want to go. Can you just choose somebody else? And apparently he was hemming and hawing. Remember his wife circumcised their son and prevent Jesus from killing Moses. Remember all of that? He didn't want to go. What a whiner. Of course, he was one of the greatest men that ever lived. But at that point, he was a whiner, which gives hope for all of us, right? Who's the next one? Jonah. You look at Jonah. I ain't doing it. I'm not going. And he headed out into the Mediterranean Sea, heading west on a boat. And, of course, the boat was in peril. And he said, throw me over the boat, and the storm will die down. And sure enough, it did. A fish gobbled him up, put him on the beach. And he went, I forget how many hundreds of miles, to Nineveh. And he walked all the way to Nineveh. And then he complained when he was at Nineveh. I knew you're a righteous God. You would save them. Why did you do that? You know, I just wasted my time here. And then a castor bean sprouts up and a worm eats the castor bean, which provided for him shade. And he started complaining all over again. And God tolerated him out there. How many times does God send us to do something and he's tolerating us the whole time? And we're complaining about what he, he's having us do. We shouldn't do that. We should look at everything that comes our way as an opportunity. Like, what am I going to learn on this trip? What am I going to learn from this person? Wow, that was a trial. I'm walking away with that one. And you can tuck that in your little bag of experiences and say, well, something I learned today. 
And it may be good, it may be bad, but we're supposed to tolerate those times as well because God is teaching us. God is leading us. And how many times did Paul run into opposition and maybe question, did God really say to do this? Here I am in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean and I'm floating out here and I may die. Did God really want me to go on this trip? Yeah, he did. And those things... The, the, the calamities that come in our life, we worry about, did God really put me here? Am I being disciplined for this? No, it's all to get us to a particular place. And, and we shouldn't shun the experiences, whether good or bad. We should just simply learn from them. Now, going on here, we have divine deliverance. There's a slave girl here that she has some special power. Verse 16 Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune-telling. Now, this fortune-telling, a lot of times it would be uttering spells under the pretense of foretelling. If you remember the... It's believed that they were Janice and Jambres, the two musicians, the two magicians in Egypt that opposed Moses. That's believed that those were the two guys that ended up going with the Exodus and being with Moses and they'd stir up the people. That's by tradition, by the way. It's not in scripture. Well, those guys, they were able to utter spells. They were able to take stabs and change them into snakes. They were able to turn water into blood and i believe they were demonically influenced they knew the black arts the demonic arts which were out there this woman had the same ability she and she was a young woman she was called a maiden in the original language so she was very young she maybe a teenager um, certainly not well into her 20s but she could earn a great deal of money uh, for her owners, owners by fortune telling. This girl, verse 17, followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, this would have been visible in some way some reaction that she would have had you may not have seen the spirit depart but you would have seen some reaction that she had at this point when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone they seized paul and silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities they brought them before the magistrates and said these men are jews and are throwing the city into an uproar a false accusation which was there now if you remember Jesus, when he was doing his ministry, the demons that he encountered, they say, I know who you are. You are the son of God. Or they would say, what are you, Jesus? What, what do you want with us? Don't throw me into, um, throw me into hell. Throw me into suffering. And that's what the demons would say. They would recognize who Jesus was and Jesus would tell them, be silent. Do not say anything. And these demons were taunting Jesus wherever he would show up. And this was taking place with Paul as well. Paul had the spirit of Jesus in him. He would show up. And this girl would follow Paul and Silas around and say, you are telling people how to be saved. And it's just this demon that was taunting them. And Paul said, enough. And he turns around and come out of her. And I would have loved to have seen this take place. 
But the woman reacted somehow, and then there are false accusations brought against Paul and Silas, and of course, their very lives could have been at stake at this particular time. Now, a couple of points on this. She had a demon, and the deliverance was instant. That's how Jesus healed. That's how the apostles healed. I believe if God wants us involved in any kind of ministry like that, now I'm real skeptical of some of these deliverance ministries out there. I think that they just go way over the top. You know, the spirit of baldness, the spirit of bad breath, whatever it might be, and you have to get rid of this spirit, whatever it is. No, I don't think that that applies today. I'm talking about real spiritual possession, and I think that this is rampant in our world. Uh, Is it in the United States? Well, I'll get into a little bit of that in a minute. But she had a demon, and the deliverance was instant. Second... Others profited by her enslavement, and that's what Satan would want. Satan wants to enslave and direct whatever we do to do his will. That's who Satan is. He wants to take over. We want to do God's will, but Satan wants to enslave the populace of this world to do his will. Thirdly, others will be upset when people are saved from the clutches of the devil. When somebody is delivered from Satan... People get mad. They get upset. Just as a side note, I I saw a quote. I'm trying to remember the quote. This is off the cuff. The quote was something about normal people don't get upset. Excuse me. Normal people don't get upset when you don't talk to children about becoming trans. The trans people do get upset when you don't talk to children about being trans. That is from the pit. That is just from the pit. And they get upset when you don't lead people into evil. And we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to lead people into Christ and righteousness. And so others will get upset when people are saved from the clutches of the devil. People will get upset when you speak truth. People will get upset when you speak the Bible, when you do anything for Christ. Also, the demons are compelled to witness to the person and work of God. So whenever the work of God is showing up, they are compelled. If they are there, they're going to witness. They witness to Jesus and what he was doing. They witness to Paul. And I'm sure to the disciples. Remember, the disciples had the ability to go out and cast out demons. That's what they did. They went out two by two, the disciples, not just the apostles. And so a couple of the quotes here, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, uh, Legion and the Gadarenes of the Gerasenes. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And and that's repeated in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, and Luke chapter 8, verse 28. And then we're going to go to the synagogue of Capernaum. Jesus ministered in the area of Galilee in Capernaum, and it's believed Peter's house is just a short distance from that. And we're going to stand in the synagogue where Jesus pronounced his ministry, where he read from Isaiah. What else we're going to see is the same floor in which this man showed up who was demon-possessed in Capernaum, in the synagogue, where you're going to stand. This is a real, authentic place. And Jesus was there in the synagogue 
the demon-possessed man was there in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And that was repeated in Luke chapter 4, verse 34. It says, ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So when you stand in Capernaum, in that synagogue, and go, where was he and where was Jesus? And it's just a small area. It's not very big. You're going to look at that and go, wow, that was right here. This is authentic. You know, you were interested in authentic. That was right there. So both Jesus was there and this demoniac, this, this guy who was possessed by a demon was there as well. Now, there are approximately 48 Bible verses that mention casting out demons. So it's a big subject. It's not a small subject. There was a lot of demonic activity at the time of Jesus when he came the first time. As it approaches the time for Jesus to come the second time, what do you think is going to happen? There's going to be more demonic activity that's going to take place. Now, in not the too distant past, I think that this was relevant for us to understand all throughout history i believe there have been people who have been influenced by demons or they've been possessed by demons and they have wreaked great havoc if you go back just in recent history that we would understand i think that karl marx was one i've read about karl marx i've listened to audio about karl marx and i am fully convinced in my mind that that man was demon possessed He led to some of the greatest genocides on the face of the earth with Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and all of these guys. And they were either completely demon possessed or they were influenced by demons on the outside. And of course, the big age Hitler, he was one as well. And he wanted to destroy the people of God. All of those individuals, like I said, were either demon possessed or demon influenced. Now you look at our day and age today. People in power positions, positions of influence, I would believe the same is true. That they are either demon-possessed or they are influenced by demons. I'll even give you a couple of names. Carl's, uh, Carl's, no, Charles, no, what's his name? W-E-F. Klaus Schwab, him. I, I knew I'd get the name out. The demon was trying to keep me from saying that. You know, it's, it's this idea that people, the, the policymakers that are out there, everything that he stands for is of the spirit of Antichrist. So it's either demon possession or it's demon influence that he is under. I don't know which one it is. I, I suppose somebody with the spirit of discernment, if they're in his presence, would be able to know what the case would be but leaders around the world i think fall into this category industry and corporate titans would fall under this media personalities those in high finance you know some of the high finance which is out there there are stock trading companies banks that never lose money in the stock market never they just get more and more wealthy as each day passes how is that possible? Well, I, I think that there are some demonic influences at play. Now, how do I really know this? How do I know that these people are, are just, they're just doing what they want. They're just fulfilling life's desires and it has nothing to do with demons, especially if you live in a postmodern society and that's defined as there's no truth. 
There is no good and evil. It's just what you consider to be your reality and you can bring it to fruition. There is no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. People operate in that. And most of these people are in that realm. They're in the postmodern realm. So how, how am I able to discern that that is what is taking place? Well, I'll give you two reasons. Experientially and spiritually. I think these things are discerned. When you start experiencing things or foreshadowing the things that are talked about in scripture that Satan loves, then you can tell and discern spiritually that this is demonically inspired. Evil being endorsed, that which is contrary to God, that is everywhere in our society. Sexual immorality is being heavily promoted to children. Enslavement of the masses is being perpetrated by all levels of authority. Now I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to try to get through this in six minutes. Economically, you think it's being influenced by the demonic realm? How about this? You must use our digital currency and spend those digital dollars the way we direct you. And I have a link. I have link. I don't know if you can see this. In blue, those are all links to articles that talk about what I'm going to bring to you. So economically, if you don't have, <clears throat> quote unquote, in the future, the mark, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. Prior to that, if you don't do what you're supposed to, you're not going to be able to buy or sell economically. Morally, you will accept deviant sexual behavior, behaviors that are an abomination or detestable in the eyes of God. All you have to do is look up Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22. And there's even some churches that are pushing this agenda. The United Methodist churches just split over this issue of accepting, accepting trans and homosexuals into the church that they are loved by God as well. And they don't need to be told to repent of their sins. Just like we all need to be told. How about, uh, first there's economically, then there's morally. How about verbally? You might be thrown into jail or prosecuted for what you say or at the very least kicked off of social media networks. Have we seen that being taken place? That you can't say what you want. You have to toe the line. If you don't toe the line, we're getting rid of you. How about nutritionally? You will eat bugs and not meat. That's coming down the pike. How about medically? Unless you take our drugs, you will be denied a life-saving transplant or even a job. Also, you will submit to gender reassignment surgery for your preteen or your children will be taken from you. Have you heard that one? And there are all kinds of articles that try to rebut this one that I just told you. And what the case is, and they even explain it, Reuters explains this, I have their article on it. If you have a a teen in another state that will not allow the surgery, they will allow you to go to a state that does, and then they take control of your children over you in another state and will get them the surgery. And they're trying to say, no, we won't take your children away from you. They are completely lying about it. And all you have to do is the research and dig into it a little bit. Uh, How about religiously? You know, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, and Skyline Wesleyan Church just won court cases where they were going to be forced to pay for abortion with their medical insurance that was given to their employees. And they just won. They don't have to do that. But the state of California was trying to get those churches to pay for abortions and praise the lord they won that in calgary canada it's reported on may 18th that tina was arrested for passing out bibles on a public sidewalk and told that if he did it again he would be arrested again and he he simply said 
I will not comply. Now, bless that young man for doing that. Passing out Bibles, he says, I will not comply. This is coming to a town or a city close to you. How about agriculturally? Are we being oppressed or are people influenced by demons that are telling us how we are being effective, uh, affected agriculturally? Farmers in conflict... Excuse me, let me let me come back a little bit here. In I didn't put down the country, but I have the article. They normally a farmer can raise four hundred head of cattle per acre. They're going to restrict that to two cows, that's the size of a football field, to get rid of the meat because of climate change, which I believe is a total fabricated lie, the way that they're teaching it out there. How about educationally? Is it being influenced by the demonic realm? EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion curriculum is being promoted throughout the educational system. And because of this, there are several factors that are also included in this, but worldwide, IQ rates are dropping with those people who are in school. Why? Because they're not teaching them the basics, the math, the sciences, all of those things, the, the governments. They just don't know stuff, and they're not able to think critically. So all of those, you have economically, morally, verbally, nationally, medically, religiously, agriculturally, educationally, and I didn't even go into globally. I mean, there's so many other areas. And you look at the people that are at the top rung of all of these that are making the decisions, they are definitely influenced demonically. And if they're not outright possessed, I don't know which of the case might be. There is a wholesale destruction of freedom taking place right under our noses. In another 20 years, what do you think we're going to look like if we continue on the same trek? And we're supposed to stand up and say, no, Christ died to set us free. We know that this is reiterated in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery so what can we do about all this well three things pray pray and pray you can do that and then we can take encouragement God's going to come and fix all this and it's going to be great in the meantime we may have some difficulty okay but we're going to employ Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 we're not going to complain we're just going to go, wow, Lord, that was a trial. And we're going to figure out how to work through the trial. And this is why it's so important that the body of Christ remains knit together. If you know somebody who's outside the body of Christ, drag them. No, kicking and screaming into church. No, invite them to be in fellowship. Because I think, you know, times will get tough. May the Lord give you wisdom as we see the things transpiring around our world. We, may we understand sharp disagreements may be used even though... There may not be reconciliation. May we reconcile with anyone or everyone that has been estranged from us. May we give place to weakness uh, of others for the sake of Christ. And might God help us or move us to do his will. May we hear his voice as we seek to be pleasing to him. Let's pray. Father, we, we understand that Paul was just a, a hero for the faith. He did so much, whether it's healing people, raising people from the dead, giving out the gospel, ministering when he 
felt he had no more strength left in ultimately giving his life for us. He followed your example. May we be like Paul and ultimately be like you. Calling out that which is evil at the right time, at the right place, with the right speech, but also doing what is right whenever the opportunity arises. And may we be a blessing to you and all who are around us. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. please stand.